Good morning, friends and family. It's wonderful to see your faces on what was supposed to be a very warm, but is now a very chilly morning. Um, thank you all for being here. Um, so happy that you are. Um, last week, we just finished up our Marks and Measures series. And this week, we're getting ready to start a new series here at Convergent Church as we approach launch in six weeks and as we approach Easter in, in six weeks. Those are on the same day. Um, and here's kind of the idea for this current series. So a lot of times in church, when we speak about the person of the Holy Spirit, we tend to focus on some of the more miraculous works of the Holy Spirit. Like a lot of times when, when, when Christians talk about the Holy Spirit, we think about things like, like healing, miraculous healing. We might talk about things like speaking in tongues, or we might talk about grand prophecies of the future, these miraculous things that, that we do believe the Holy Spirit can do and does do, but we tend to kind of relegate his movement as God, as one of the people, the persons of God, we tend to kind of relegate everything he does to these sort of, I don't want to say overly miraculous, but these, these astoundingly miraculous things. And so what we want to do in this series is to shine a light on the great gift that the Holy Spirit is in the presence of the church day to day and kind of ask the question, what is the Holy Spirit responsible for? What does he do? What is his work in the life of the church? And we want to show just how extraordinary he is making a distinction between what we might call the gifts of the Holy Spirit, which is what the church focuses on a lot. We want to talk about the gift of the Holy Spirit. The gift that the Holy Spirit is. Making a distinction between those two things, we've titled this new series, The Gift of the Spirit. If you have your Bibles, uh, whether you have a physical Bible or on your phone, turn with me to uh, the Gospel of John, chapter 3. And we're just going to be working through the first eight verses in this chapter today. So John, chapter 3. Let's start with verses 1 and 2. Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. One thing we see in this text is that Nicodemus was a Pharisee. Nicodemus was among the religious elite of his day. He was a strict obedient follower of Old Testament law. The Pharisees believed that they were the faithful remnant of God's people. And they believed that through strict obedience and observance of God's Old Testament law, that they were accepted by God, set apart as clean before his eyes. And they considered everyone else, including their own countrymen, fellow Jews, who did not observe the law as strictly as they did. They considered those people dirty, and they considered them damned. Now, Nicodemus, this person who comes to speak with Jesus, he was a Pharisee, and so he would have lived his life under the understanding that observing God's law meant that he was holy and that he was clean. He would have believed that his work for God is what ultimately saved him from God's wrath against sin. And we see here that the text says that Nicodemus was a teacher of the law, 
having deeply studied God's Old Testament law, studied it fully, likely memorized really large portions of the Old Testament by memory, and yet he comes to Jesus and he calls him rabbi. That word rabbi meaning teacher. We have someone here who considers himself clean, who considers himself accepted by God, part of the religious elite, a very studied and intelligent man, who the text says, a ruler of the Jews, he comes to Jesus and he says, my teacher. And this is an astounding thing. Because the Pharisees believed that one needed rigorous instruction in order to observe God's law and to be able to teach God's law to other people. Yet here we have Nicodemus acknowledging Jesus as a teacher, despite Jesus having no Pharisaical training, no pharisaical schooling. He was just an unknown man from the region of Galilee. But Nicodemus acknowledges Jesus because of this miraculous power that he sees in him. He says, we know that you're a teacher come from God because no one can do the signs that you do unless God is with them. Nicodemus is saying, look, no one else can work the miracles that you work. I've never seen anybody do the kinds of things that you're able to do, Jesus. And I see something different in you, so I'm coming to you as a student. Nicodemus is coming to learn from Jesus. Before Nicodemus can ask any questions of this teacher, before he can say, how do you do these miracles, or why do you do these miracles, or what exactly is so special and amazing about you, Jesus, Jesus does something truly miraculous. Read verse 3 with me. Jesus answers him saying, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Now, why does Jesus respond to Nicodemus this way? John 2, verse 23 through 25 This is a chapter directly preceding this chapter. It says this. Now when he, Jesus, was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs he was doing. But Jesus on his part did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about man. For he himself knew what was in man. We have Nicodemus coming to Jesus, coming to learn in the presence of a teacher, in the presence of a rabbi, in the presence of the master, and Jesus doesn't even allow him to get a single question out, but looks into Nicodemus' heart. Did you catch that? In this text, we see not only Nicodemus, but other people coming to Jesus because of the miracles that he did, but he says he does not give himself to them because he knew what was in them. He knew their hearts. He knew their thoughts. He knew what resided in the inner part of man. He could look into a person and understand what was there. And Nicodemus comes for the same reason, because he sees these miraculous things that Jesus does, and he says, look, Nicodemus, you see my miracles, you see my power, you see what I'm able to do, but you don't see my kingdom. He says, you see these miraculous things I'm able to do, but you don't see what's coming. You don't see what's coming after. You don't see the kingdom. This concept of God's kingdom being all the things of God, faith 
in God. Salvation from our sins. Eternal life with Christ. Justification or having a right standing before God. Sanctification or growing in the things of Jesus. Being a part of God's family. All of these things. This total package that is the kingdom. Jesus says, you see my miracles, but you can't see the full picture. You don't see who I am, and you have no idea what I've come to do. Behind the scenes, Jesus sees something is lacking inside of Nicodemus. He looks into Nicodemus, something that makes Nicodemus unable to see the full plan of what God is doing. And Nicodemus, being an intelligent and intellectual man, responds in a really interesting way. Read verse 4 with me. Nicodemus says, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born again? No. (laughs) My four-year-old says no. Sometimes people read this verse and they think Nicodemus is being sarcastic, but Nicodemus is being very serious. He's an intelligent man. He's saying, how is this possible, Jesus? How is it possible for me to be born again? At this time, he was probably probably in his 50s, 60s. How can I go again into my mother's room and, and be born again? See, up until this point, Nicodemus has done everything he can to know God and to enter God's presence. Nicodemus very much believed in this kingdom concept, this concept of God coming and being with us and us being his people and God ruling and reigning amongst us. He very much believed in this idea. Nicodemus observed every law. He gave every sacrifice required in the temple. He even tithed, he gave little, little tiny herbs of, of cumin and dill, little tiny herbs from his garden. That's how important keeping the law was to Nicodemus. And Jesus tells him, no, you can't see my kingdom. You can't come unless you're born again. That word again being the word anathon in the Greek, which means also again, but it also means above. Jesus is saying, Nicodemus, you can't enter unless you're born from above. And so Nicodemus filters this jarring statement from Jesus, this confusing statement from Jesus. He filters it through the only framework he knows, which is law-keeping performing in order to be accepted by God. And he says, you're telling me, a grown man, I have to climb back into my mother's womb and be born again? It's a very graphic picture that, that, that really shows exactly how confused Nicodemus is at that moment. And he says, that's impossible, Jesus. I can't do that. And that is precisely Jesus' point here in this conversation with Nicodemus. That is precisely why Jesus says this. Jesus uses the illustration of being born again to explain what must happen in every single human life before they can come into God's kingdom and enter into his presence. Jesus uses this concept of being born again in this passage to get at the heart of the fundamental problem of all fallen people. Verse 5. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, 
he cannot enter the kingdom of God. So not only can Nicodemus not see the kingdom of God, Jesus says you can't enter the kingdom of God, even at the off chance that you would be able to see my kingdom, Nicodemus. Unless you experience this new birth, you won't be able to enter it. That's our problem. Mankind cannot see God's kingdom, and we can't enter it. This is what we call the doctrine of total depravity, or what some would call radical corruption. Here's the summary of it. As we survey the landscape of our world, all of human history, not just 2022, from the dawn of time, as we survey the landscape of human history, we do not find mankind searching for God. We do not find mankind pining after God. We do not see mankind seeking to see God or hoping to enter into God's presence. On the contrary, we find everyone from the smallest of child to the most elderly running from God and seeking to get as far away from God as possible. We're blind to who God is. We can't see him. We can't see the kingdom. And we're ignorant of what he desires of us. Jesus is looking into Nicodemus's heart and he's reminding him that all people are sinners at the root of their being. Not only can we not approach God, but in our natural state, we do not want to approach God, no matter how it may seem. If you have your Bibles, turn with me to Romans 3. Let's read verses 11 through 20. This is Paul illustrating to the Roman church that all have sinned. He says this, Romans 3, 11 through 20, none is righteous. That means in right standing with God. None is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good. No, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery, and the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. And listen to this, verses 19 through 20. This is very important what Paul says. Paul says, Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped. And the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. We have here Nicodemus coming to Jesus as a teacher and saying, teacher, teach me. We have Nicodemus who spent his entire life observing God's law. But what does it say here? What's the point of God's law? To bring a knowledge of sin. Nicodemus spent his entire life observing this thing that if it was used correctly, should have done one thing. It should have shown Nicodemus that he was a sinner. 
Because all that can come from viewing God's law is an understanding that we are fallen individuals. When we read the Ten Commandments, most of us get to maybe one, two, maybe the third one, and we go, nope, failed. Pretty much right off the bat. And what Nicodemus didn't understand is that all that can come from practicing the law rigorously is a misunderstanding that we are somehow righteous when we really are not. That's all that the law can show us. We cannot be saved by merely observing God's law. This is what Jesus is trying to get into Nicodemus' head. We, are, we cannot be saved by merely observing God's law. And Jesus makes this point by saying you must be born again, born from above. In this section, these eight verses we're going to look at today, Jesus uses the word born five times. Five times. It must be very important if he uses that many times. And it's important because it's the only act in life that you had absolutely zero control over. You had no control over your birth. I was born on April 29th, 1989 at Sparrow Hospital early in the morning to Mary Jo Bibiak and Derek Perry, and I had no control over that. I didn't choose what day I was going to be born. I wasn't able to choose the hospital. I wasn't able to choose my parents. I didn't ask to be gestated for nine months in my mother's womb. I didn't ask for my parents to be who my parents were. It simply happened to me by no will of mine and by no work of mine. None of us had any influence over our birth. Jesus is saying, Nicodemus, in your current state, no matter how hard you work, you cannot come into God's kingdom unless God first does a work in you. No matter what you do, you cannot come into God's kingdom unless God first does a work in you. You must be born of water and of spirit. Verse 6, Jesus says, because that which is born of flesh is flesh, and that which is born of spirit is spirit. When Jesus speaks about the flesh here, he's speaking about our fallen and sinful nature, which is our natural born state as humans. All that the flesh can produce is flesh. All sinners can produce is more sin. Even our best and most well-intentioned actions produce more falling short of God's righteous standard for us. Jesus says you must be born of water. Now, some people have looked at this text and said, well, the water must mean our natural birth, right? When, when children are born, the water is broken, and, the, and we come out, right? We come out in water. It doesn't really make a whole lot of sense if Jesus is saying, in order to be born again, you must be born one time. In order to be born again, you must be born the first time. In other words, you have to exist, Courtney, in order to be reborn. That doesn't make a lot of sense, does it? Some people have said it's baptism that the water points to, but baptism doesn't actually show up until later on in the New Testament as something that the church does regularly to bring those into the body of Christ. So it can't be that. Turn with me to Matthew 23. Matthew 23, verses 25 through 28. This is one of Jesus' rebukes against the Pharisees, these strict observers of the law. He says this, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. 
For you clean the outside of the cup and the plate, but inside they are full of greed and self-indulgence. You blind Pharisee, first clean the inside of the cup and the plate, that the outside also may be clean. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you are like whitewashed tombs, which outwardly appear beautiful, but within are full of dead people's bones and all uncleanliness. You also outwardly appear righteous to others, but within you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. Jesus is showing Nicodemus, you are not righteous as you believe you are. You must be cleansed. You must be washed with pure water, and you cannot wash yourself. Nicodemus, you've tried it. Nicodemus, you've observed every single law. Nicodemus, according to the Pharisees, you are a righteous man. You have tried to clean yourself, but all you've been able to do is make yourself appear clean. You're like a cup that is only washed on the outside, not on the inside. You're like a tomb that's painted white and from far away looks clean, but when we open the door, there's nothing but rot and decay on the inside. He said, you must be born again. And, and guess what, Nicodemus? You have no more control over this new birth than you did at your first birth. You are flesh, Nicodemus. You are sinful, and all you can produce is more of the same, no matter how hard you try. And I can just see Nicodemus' world crashing around him. I mean, I can imagine Nicodemus at this point, having lived his whole life believing he was righteous, he's now faced with the understanding that he cannot save himself. He cannot make himself clean. He's not clean. He's not righteous. His entire life of observing God's law has been a waste of time and of little effort. And if we feel sorry for Nicodemus... I plead with you to feel sorry for yourself. Because none of us are better off or further ahead on the road to holiness than Nicodemus was. We're all found dead in our sins. Whether we've made any attempt to clean ourselves up or not, it doesn't matter. We are all in need of this new life that Jesus speaks of. This being born again, born from above, and we cannot do this on our own. We must be what the church has historically called regenerated. Re meaning again, generated mean to become. We must become something. This is what Jesus means by being born of water in the spirit. This is the doctrine of regeneration. One great question that the church has debated over for centuries is whether faith, trusting in Christ, comes before regeneration, being born again. Or is it that we are regenerated, we're born again, and then through that regeneration, we exercise our faith in Christ, trusting in Him. The question is, does regeneration come before faith? Does God need to do something in us before we can see and long for and enter into his kingdom? Does God work first? Turn with me to Ezekiel 26, 25 through 28. Ezekiel was an Old Testament 
prophet, his job was to bring people back in line with God's word, but to also give them a glimpse of what the future would be like. And in this text, Ezekiel talks about what it will be like in God's new kingdom. Ezekiel 26, 25 through 28, he says this, I, being God, I, God, will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean from all your uncleanliness, and from all your idols I will cleanse you, and I will give you a new heart, and a new spirit I will put within you, and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh, and I will give you a heart of flesh." And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to observe my rules. You shall dwell in the land that I shall give your fathers and you shall be my people and I will be your God. It's interesting that in John, Jesus talks about being born again five times. In this text, we see God saying, I will five times. He says, I will, I will, I will, I will, I will then you will. Before we get to, before we get to, you shall be my people, we see I will put within you a heart of stone for, for your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. I'll put my spirit in you. I will cause you to walk in my statutes. I will cleanse you from all your uncleanliness. I will give you a new heart. Friends, there are things in the Christian life that God will ask you to do alongside him. There are times where God will call you in his word to work with him even as he works in you. He'll call you to pray and to strive. A popular text is to work out our salvation with fear and trembling, to pursue sanctification. These are what we call synergistic things. We work together with God even as He is working in us. But our salvation is not one of those things. Our salvation is not a synergistic act. It's what we call monergistic. There is one actor in salvation. Salvation is an act of God alone. It is 100% His work. It is not 99% his work, 1%, my work, it is 100% His work. And you're being saved, which begins with regeneration, was a sovereign act of God in which He chose to come and work in your life. Without knowing, without our even asking, without our pleading or praying, He opened your eyes, if you are a saved individual, to see yourself as a sinner, and Jesus as a great Savior of sinners. To confess that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life, and then, and only then, to allow you to enter into the kingdom of God. This is where the Holy Spirit comes in. Right now, enter the Holy Spirit. This is what He does. This is a primary act of the Holy Spirit, who is God. He regenerates us. He makes us new. He gives us new hearts. He gives us eyes to see. He gives us hearts that long to enter God's kingdom when our hearts did not long to enter into God's kingdom. 
the Holy Spirit sovereignly invades. And I use that word invades because it's the truth of what it is. He comes to me in the midst of my open rebellion against God. He overthrows my desires to live apart from God. And he gives me a new heart that now beats to know God. That is a primary work of the Holy Spirit in our lives. Look what Jesus says in verses 7 and 8 here. He says, Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. Jesus is saying, Nicodemus, the Holy Spirit is like the wind. He blows and he goes wherever he pleases. He's not a force that can be wielded like a sword. The Holy Spirit is the sovereign God. And we have no control over his decisions or actions. He regenerates whom he pleases. Think about it. What are the characteristics of wind? Like, think about the wind for a minute. First of all, it's invisible. You cannot see the wind. You might be able to see what the wind is moving, what the wind is carrying along, but the wind itself, you cannot see it. The wind is uncontrollable. You cannot tell the wind to stop. The wind will continue to blow in your face no matter how hard you yell at it. You cannot tell it to stop. If it wants, it's going to blow hard enough to demolish even the strongest defenses. It's irresistible. You cannot put a cap on the wind's power. It's unpredictable. You do not know when or where it's going to blow. I've lost many a hat because of this. You have no idea when it's going to blow. It cannot be summoned. You cannot tell the wind when to come. You cannot tell it to come and do what you please. It will not do it. The word for wind, both in the Old Testament and the New, is the word ruach. Or in the Greek, pneuma. It means wind, breath, or spirit. We cannot stop the Holy Spirit any more than we can stop the wind. And Jesus says the Holy Spirit must work his will in our lives before we can enter eternal life with God. So what does this mean for Nicodemus? And what does it mean for us that the Holy Spirit sovereignly regenerates Christians? Well, for those who are in the faith, those who have repented, confessed that I I am a sinner, and have placed their faith in Jesus Christ as the great Savior of sinners. It means that we owe a lot to the Holy Spirit. We owe our very being as Christians to the sovereign power of the Holy Spirit. Were it not for the Holy Spirit working in my life, I would not be here preaching with you today. If it were not for the Holy Spirit working In your life, you would not love Jesus the way you do, Christians. We owe so much to the Holy Spirit. If he had not moved in us, we would not have moved even a single inch towards God. It means that because his work is invisible, 
I cannot see it as it is working. I can only measure its effects, like leaves being pushed along by the wind. I can see the leaves, but I cannot see the breeze that carries it. This means that as a pastor and as a Christian, I judge every man and woman based on their works. I judge every man and woman based on what I can see of their life. Because flesh can only produce flesh. But the Spirit can only produce spiritual fruit. So if it looks like flesh, if it reeks of sin, it's flesh. But if it's producing what aligns with God's Word, it is life-giving. If it's life-giving as the Spirit is life-giving, that is the Spirit. So no, I am not Jesus. I cannot see what the Holy Spirit is doing inside of you, and you cannot see what the Holy Spirit is doing inside of me. So as I look at you in Christian fellowship, I look at your life and I say, what do I see that the Spirit is doing there? Does this mean that Christians can never sin? Hardly. But what it does mean is that if the Holy Spirit is in our lives, we cannot continue in habitual sin without conviction and without repentance. Turn with me to 1 John 3.9. It says this. 1 John 3.9. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning. For God's seed abides in him. And he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. That text there, God's seed, meaning the Holy Spirit. If the Holy Spirit is alive in us, we will have conviction to slowly steer our lives to be more in line with what Jesus said our lives should be. Not immediately, but over time. Because the Holy Spirit, the seed of God, lives in us. If, if we are of God and we have the Holy Spirit living in us, our life will reflect what He desires it to reflect in His Word as He lives in us. Over time, we'll become more and more and more like Jesus because of the Spirit's sovereign work in our lives. We may not be able to see His invisible work in real time, but as we survey the landscape of our lives, there will be peaks and valleys there will be seasons of great Christ-likeness and great righteousness and, and running with the Lord and finding our joy in Him and being near to Him. And there will be some deep, dark seasons where we do not know where God is and it feels as though we cannot find Him. But as we survey the landscape of our lives, over time, we will experience an overall upward trajectory in being like Jesus. This is proof that we see who Jesus is, that we have new life, that we are born again and have entered into the kingdom of God. The character and the works not being the thing that saves us, but being the evidence, the fruit of what the Holy Spirit is doing in our lives that proves that we have entered into God's kingdom and in his presence. Some of you believe you know God, and I've been here. Some of you believe you know God, but your life does not reflect that you do. You are trusting in something other than God's sovereign work in your life, and Christ's death 
on a cross to justify you, make you clean before God. You're trusting your intellect. You're trusting some work that you're doing. You're trusting that your character is good enough. You're striving. You're working to be clean before God. And all of that is meaningless if it does not flow from a born-again life. If it does not flow from the Holy Spirit's work, it means nothing. You're like Nicodemus. You're clean on the outside, but you're dirty on the inside. You have enough self-awareness to know you need a Savior, but you lack the humility to see that the Savior is not you and that you truly need God to work in your life. You need His sovereign intervention. So I would beg of you, stop trusting in anything other than God to save you and make you clean because there is no one who can save you or make you clean other than the Holy Spirit working in your life to show you who Jesus is and for you to trust Him. And if you do so, your works will mean something. Your works will have eternity in them. You'll stop striving after wind and you'll be able to rest in the reality that if Christ died to pay for my sins, I am a new creation. I am a child of God. I am born again. You will have assurance in your salvation. You won't worry about losing it because you'll know that the Holy Spirit lives in you and is in your life. And there's some here who have have not known God, but you might have a desire to do so. If you desire to know God, if right now you feel the desire to know God, it is evidence that the Holy Spirit is working in your life. If right now you are feeling the pull to ask God for salvation, if you desire to not only be clean on the outside, but also clean on the inside, that is the Holy Spirit working in your life. We call it conviction, and it's a beautiful thing. And I would ask you now, if you want to be born again, ask for it. Ask God right now. That he would come into your life, that he would clean you from the inside out. Confess that you're a sinner. And please understand that you're in good company. Everyone in this room is a sinner, including the man speaking right now. And only God can make us clean. Confess that you know that your work cannot make you clean. But God himself must cleanse you and bring you to new life by the power of the Spirit. Nicodemus would eventually cease his works, his striving after wind, his working to be clean. He would eventually come to know Christ. He would defend Jesus before the Pharisees as they condemned him. He would eventually be cast out of that circle of religious Leaders, he would be mocked and ridiculed as Jesus was killed for the salvation of sins and hung upon a cross as he was brought down. Nicodemus was there to take his broken body and to wrap it and to embalm it and to put it into a tomb. Eventually, Nicodemus would be born again, but it was not without great loss and great cost, my friends. Tradition tells us that Nicodemus was removed from all social standing. He lost all that he had, all of his inheritance. 
He was eventually exiled from Jerusalem, made to live outside the city walls while his family lived within the city walls in abject poverty. There's a story that there's a daughter of Nicodemus who was found digging in a dung heap for small little grains that she would be able to eat that came from the horses. And a Pharisee came along to her and said, who are you? And she said, I'm the daughter of Nicodemus. And he wouldn't even give her food, clothe her, or bathe her. Nicodemus lost everything, church. But what Nicodemus gained in running to Jesus, in trusting that there was no way that he could clean himself, but he needed God to work in his life. What he gained was eternal treasure in Christ. Today, Nicodemus is in heaven. He is with God. He is with Jesus. And there is full joy. There is no lack. Nicodemus is not looking back on his life and saying, man, I really wish I would have worked so hard to clean myself up. He's rejoicing in the presence of God and he's saying, I am so thankful that I surrender to the work of the Holy Spirit, that I ask God to clean me instead of trying to make myself righteous. And so if you're feeling that pull to run to Christ this morning, I encourage you to do so because here's the truth. A heart that is still opposed to God will not ask. A heart that is still opposed to God will not ask to be cleaned on the inside. But those in whom the Holy Spirit is working cannot do anything but ask. The Holy Spirit is as irresistible as the wind. For they know that in Christ and with the Holy Spirit lies eternal life. So whoever you are, wherever you are, if you wish to enter the kingdom of God, you must be born again. Jesus stands as the Savior of every wretched sinner and offers it as a free gift. Run to Christ. Let's pray. Lord God, we love you. And we thank you that you loved us. Lord, we see in your word that it was not that we loved you first and then you chose us, but that you came to sovereignly work in us and caused us to love you. Lord, as you have said, we love because you first loved us. We thank you for working in our lives, and Lord, we ask that you would continue to work in our lives. We thank you for your work in regeneration that has allowed us to see the kingdom, to see the king of the kingdom, to see Jesus as, as glorious as he is, has convicted us of our sins, and called us to run now into that kingdom. Holy Spirit, we owe all of that to you. We thank you for not leaving us where you found us. Lord, you, you, you could have done that. You did not have to choose us. But for so many of us, you have. And you've poured out your grace upon us that none of us may boast. That none of us may boast that we are clean on our own. That none of us may boast that we are righteous before your eyes. But we only boast in the cross of Jesus Christ. But help us not to boast. But to, in humility, just, just be Christians that say, I owe my salvation to God, full stop. 100% his work. Let us be men and women who, who pour out praise and worship, knowing 
that we would not be saved or redeemed if it were not for you. We would not have even have asked if it were not for you working in our lives. And so, Lord, let us lift you up, God, as we, as we partake in communion, as we worship, as we sing, as we love one another, as we give, as we serve, as we do everything. Let it be for your great glory, God, because we owe it all to you. In Jesus' name, amen.